The Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this or ever struggled with this, but sometimes when we read the Bible, it's kind of hard to see how all the different stories fit together. They're like puzzle pieces that seem really difficult to put together. And then when you have a hard time putting those pieces together, then you have a hard time seeing yourself in this great story. So this is what we're going to do during Lent this year. We're going to try to do the big picture. We're going to try and see how all these stories, especially Old Testament stories, fit into the story, and then how we fit into this great big story. And specifically, what we're going to do is look at five Old Testament covenants to Adam, Noah, as we just heard, Abraham, Moses, and King David. And all of these then point us to the one covenant, the new covenant in Jesus. Like all the Old Testament, what these stories do is they They not only foreshadow what's coming, but they actually help us understand what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what what exactly does this do for us? So for starters, let's talk about what is a covenant. I'd like to start by comparing it to a a contract. So sort of make it a contrast that will help us define it. A contract, of course, is a legal and a binding agreement between various parties It's a business arrangement. It's usually for goods or for property. It's based on legal rules. Now, what's interesting is in our time, our culture, we can use the word covenant, but what we really are talking about is a contract. Many of you have neighborhood covenants, but what is that? It's a bunch of rules about how you're going to share the property in your hood and get along, and you probably have, you know, fees and things like that that you have to pay. It's it's actually a contract. But a biblical covenant is initiated by God, and what it does is offers a relationship with Him. See, it's, it's not an exchange of goods and property. It's not, you know, God, I do this for you, and then you'll do this for me, right? No, it's an exchange of persons. I am yours, and you are mine. See, God makes a covenant with us so that we can be family. God himself, as you know, is a family. This loving exchange of persons, the the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are made in his likeness. We're made to reflect who he is. So as you think about it, we human beings are the only thing in all of creation that we live in families. And in fact, only human beings can be family with God. So whereas breaking a contract means things like fines, maybe lawsuits, jail time, when you break a covenant, it means broken relationships or broken hearts. See, when we sin, it's, it's not just merely breaking God's rules that he gave us. It's 
breaking that relationship with your heavenly Father. So the story that we're going to try to hear in all of these stories, these various covenants, is all about the creation of our Father's family, which begins with Adam and Eve and then now extends to the rest of the world and therefore includes you and me. So let's go back to the beginning to Adam and Eve. Genesis 1:27. Male and female, he created them. In the next verse, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The next chapter, verse 24, he says, And man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, what we're going to see in each of these covenants each week is that God always gives a sign. And in this first covenant, in the creation, the sign is the gift of marriage. The one flesh, bodily union of the man and the woman. Because their marriage reflects the great big story, the marriage that God wants to have with us. See, God wants to marry us. He wants to be one with us. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. We're going to take a little quick side trip, and it's a rather sensitive one, but it's important because we're often told or it's often said about us that, you know, the church just hates gay people. Christians hate gay people. We don't hate gay people. In fact, we don't hate any people. We're called to always love the person no matter what. But on the other hand, we also can't say that homosexuality is okay. And here is precisely why, what we're looking at. Not only is it disordered to nature because it can't be fruitful and therefore give life, but ultimately it's because a man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot be this one flesh bodily sign that it's talking about. Though they can get a marriage license in this country, of course, which is a contract, they can't actually unite and therefore have the covenant of marriage. But we also have to be careful because we can't just pick on homosexuality as if that's the only problem out there. In fact, what this teaches us is that any sexual act that is not this one flesh union of a husband and a wife, whatever it is, premarital sex, adultery, polyamory, masturbation, pornography, any of it, see, none of it is the sign that images God's love towards us. So let's go back to Adam and Eve now. You probably maybe know what happened to the covenant. Of course, they broke it. The snake convinced them that they didn't want to be just like God. Oh, no, no, no. You should want to be God. And you know how it goes. They take the fruit. They disobey God. They eat the fruit. They cover up their bodies from each other, and they go hiding from God. In other words, a great divorce happens between them, between each other, between them and God. And even within them, there is this divorce of body and soul, which will ultimately be death itself. That's what happens when body and soul are separated. Let's take one, little more, one more little quick side trip here. Again, very sensitive. Do we see now, though, the problem with divorce? If this one flesh bodily union between two is meant to be the sign of God's love. What divorce does is it takes that sign and tears it apart. So Adam and Eve, 
make a mess out of the covenant. But the good news is God makes a promise. The, the promise is that the son of Eve is going to conquer the snake and that the son of Eve will eventually take another bride, his church. Paul says it this way in Ephesians, explains to us what this all means. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, Genesis 2 verse 24, yes, it referred to Adam and Eve, but ultimately it referred to Christ and his church, Jesus and us, his people. See, that's what I mean. That's the story. That's the marriage And so every other earthly marriage is meant to be a sign of this marriage. Every earthly marriage is meant to be a story that points to the story. And so the good news is that God promises to Adam and Eve that he still is going to marry us. But as the story unfolds, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Their son Cain murders their other son Abel. Six generations later in Cain's line, which by the way, six is an imperfect number, his descendant Lamech is also a murderer, so we can kind of see how that's going. But Adam and Eve also have another son, and his name is Seth. And it says that he and others were now calling on the name of the Lord, following the Lord. And Seth's line leads us down to Noah. But by the, point you get, by the time you get to Noah, the, the earth is in like one great big family feud. It's the sons of Seth versus the sons of Cain, and the sons of Cain seem to be winning. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, except for Noah, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And perhaps you know how that story goes. God commands Noah to build a boat, an ark, in the middle of nowhere, nowhere near the water. But Noah faithfully follows the Lord, and he loads it up with his family and with animals from all over the face of the earth, and it rains for 40 days and for 40 nights, and they are on that floating zoo for over a year. See, what the flood does is that it destroys the evil. It purges and it cleanses and it washes the earth. Now it's a new creation. God tells Noah, just like he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. God is starting all over again. And the sign that he gives this time, of course, is the rainbow. And what's a rainbow? A rainbow's colors come from that refraction and dispersion from that one source of light, the sunlight cutting through it from God, who is that the light, all the color of the creation goes forth. All right, so after Noah, it's all good, right? This is probably going to ruin your image of Noah. Genesis 9 verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brothers, his two brothers, outside. All right, this is a story they didn't tell you in Sunday school, right? 
What's going on here? Well, to use some decorum, Noah, of course, gets drunk, and it says Ham sees his nakedness, which is an innuendo. For a perversion that is so sick, it ends up in a son, Canaan. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read Leviticus 18. See all the prohibitions that God's talking about there. What Noah does, it's interesting, Ham does this, but he doesn't curse Ham. He curses the son that comes, which is Canaan. So what do you get from the line of Ham then? You get the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. You get all the great enemies of Israel. In other words, the family feud is still on. Evil is still thriving, but God is still at work. Noah's other son is Shem, and from his line you get the Semites. The only time we usually hear that word today is when we hear anti-Semitic. But the line of Shem is what's going to lead us into next week and beyond, because you go from the Semites to the Hebrews to the Jews to Jesus. So here's a few takeaways for this week. First of all, Do you feel like at times your family is a mess? And maybe your marriage is ugly, your kids are a wreck, struggling maybe with your sexuality? We see right away from the beginning that we're already in like company. There's nothing new under the sun. But more important than what we see is that our Lord does not give up on us. See, He's still trying to make us into who He made us to be. And He's trying to make us into family the way family is supposed to be. God works through this mess time and time again. That's why He offers all of these Old Testament covenants, but all of them are going to lead us eventually to this one covenant in Jesus. So from Adam and Eve, we learn today about the marriage. And when you think about a wedding, it is the bride who usually goes and of course, gets the dress on and gets her hair done and the makeup and the nails and the whole nine yards. But listen to what Paul says, again, back in Ephesians 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, in holy baptism... Jesus washes his bride. He prepares us. He makes us, his bride, beautiful and ready to meet him. Baptism for us is this entry into this one covenant we're talking about. Baptism is our marriage to Jesus. I love that in our church, the bride comes in the same place where we get baptized to come in. It ties it together for us. This is our marriage to Jesus. This is this unbreakable bond with Him that then is consummated every time we become one flesh with Him. When we eat His flesh and we drink His blood, He remains in us and we remain in Him. And so from Noah today, we learn even more about the power that this baptism does in our lives. In our second readings, Peter says that This is what this Noah episode was about. 
God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the flood of baptism cleanses us, destroys the sin in us. And just like those eight were saved in the ark, now through this water, through the ark of the church, look up, it's an upside-down boat, through the ark of the church, we are saved. In fact, some people have said our church from the outside, when you look at it, kind of looks like the ark floating through the water. Through the ark of the church, we are saved. As you leave today, look at the top of the baptismal font and see if you can find the octagon. It's a fun thing to do with your kids, by the way. Look if you see if you can find the octagon. It's there. One of the reasons why it's there is because it stands for the eight people who were saved in the ark, just as we are saved in the waters of baptism. See, in this one covenant, we become the new creation. The rainbow of the flood reminds us that the water does not destroy us. Actually, the water saves us and cleanses us. We get a brand new start in the full color of the new creation. And here's the last thing. There is still a family feud, though, isn't there? A battle that is raging around us, but also within us. And this is why Martin Luther teaches us in the small catechism. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam, or Eve, or Cain, or Lamech, or Noah, or Ham, or Canaan, in us by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man or woman should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. See, when these sinister characters begin to rear their ugly heads within us, in our thoughts and in our words and in what our actions might do, what we've got to do, friends, is plunge them into the water We have to repent. That's what this holy season is about. It's what Jesus said in the gospel. Repent. Turn back to God. Turn back to this unbreakable promise that your God has made to you in your baptism. And when this battle becomes especially fierce, then he's given us this wonderful other great sacrament called confession, where he assures us of the promises of our baptism. He assures us of the forgiveness he's poured out on us. We hear again the great mercy. Confession, my friends, is nothing other than a return to baptism, to be washed clean again. So I'd like to give you a moment to reflect as you carry on in your Lenten journey. What sin needs to be purged and cleansed from you now, this Lent? Why? So that you can be reunited in this great covenant with your God. You can be reconciled with Him so that you can live once again in the full color of this new creation.